I invite you now to turn and find in your Bibles the scripture passage we will consider this morning from Matthew chapter 16. If you've been with us for some months, we have been going through the book of Isaiah, but because of the special occasion of the profession of faith of Aaron Howerzile and Eric Nylander, I thought it would be wise and fitting for us to consider this passage where we find Peter's confession of Christ. So you can find that in your pew Bibles on page 1524. Our scripture passage is Matthew 16, verse 13 to 20. Loved ones, hear now the reading of God's holy word. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I want you, first of all, as we begin this sermon this morning, I want you to try and picture this scene in your mind. So turn on your imagination this morning. Where was Jesus with his disciples? And that is our first point, the place, the setting here. The text tells us, right, that this was in the district of Caesarea Philippi. What was this place? Well, it really was a unique place in the Holy Land of Israel. I invite you later today to go look it up online. The city was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it was at the base of Mount Hermon. It was also the location of one of the largest springs that still feeds the Jordan River today. So the abundant water supply there just made this area a very lush and fertile and attractive place for religious worship and a lot of pagan worship as well. Because it was such a lush and fertile area, Philip the Tetrarch in the first century had renamed this city Caesarea in honor of the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus. And since there already was a Caesarea Marentima, well, Philip attached his name as well to it, naming it Caesarea Philippi. Now, giving the city this name, you can hear it probably, it was charged with politics. It was political. This name of this place was a public statement to all in the Holy Land of the Roman Empire's occupation and the supremacy of their their emperors. Why is that important for us to consider at the outset? Well, it helps us see the political aspect of Peter's profession here, because Peter claims that Jesus is the Christ. 
Now, Christ is a term in Greek that translates into Hebrew, Messiah, or anointed king. And they both mean the same thing, Christ and Messiah, just in two different languages. And according to the Old Testament of the Jews, Peter here was claiming that Jesus is the true king of the universe. All other leaders and rulers are either imposters or puppet kings before the king of kings, who is Jesus. That's what Peter's claiming. And that seems to be the primary significance of this place that Jesus chose to ask his disciples these questions and to reveal his identity. Jesus wanted them to affirm that he is the true eternal king over against all other kings, all other empires, all other kingdoms. Jesus was showing that God's kingdom will persevere to the end long after the fall of the Roman Empire. Rome fell. The church of Christ remains today. Jesus is the true king of the entire cosmos, and his kingdom will prevail in the end. And so that was the place of this story. Now to the next part, the questions posed. Jesus first asked his disciples what others were saying about him in their day. But what Jesus is really after here is what his own disciples said of him and believed about him. Jesus wanted to ask if they had come to see and embrace the reality of who he is. Jesus wanted them to wrestle with this question. Other people say all kinds of things about me, but what do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus wanted to hear his own students that he had been discipling and training. He wanted to hear them affirm who he is and to give their wholehearted allegiance to him. Why? Why did he want that? Was Jesus looking for personal affirmation? Well, sadly, I do this all the time with my wife, asking her to affirm me in all different kinds of ways. Why? Because I doubt myself. Uh, in many ways. Is that what Jesus wanted to hear? Is that what he was looking for? The affirmation of his friends? No, not at all. Jesus didn't have a frail ego like I do. He knew who he was, and he already had the full affirmation that he needed. When did he receive that? Well, at his baptism, when the Father, his Father from heaven, spoke over him, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so he had that affirmation. He didn't need any more affirmation. In fact, it's the opposite here. Jesus wanted to affirm Peter and his disciples in their faith in him. He wanted to clearly reveal his own identity to them and affirm their faith in him. He wanted them to see the truth, and he wanted to tell them, yes, it is true, I am the Messiah. The questions posed here by Jesus, we find, were intended to position their hearts for his words of affirmation and his promises that he wanted to give to them. And so once he asked that first question and they answered it, Jesus then goes on to ask the second big question, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the bold spokesman of the apostles, replied with his answer. Who was Peter? That's our next point. Peter, the person. 
Now, based on all accounts in the New Testament, we know that Peter was a talker. He was a confident chatterbox, we could say, perhaps an extrovert or a loud-mouthed fisherman. And some people that follow Jesus are like Peter, outgoing, talkative, and people like Peter are useful in God's kingdom. But there are all different kinds of people that follow Jesus. We think of perhaps the young Virgin Mary, who by all accounts was a quiet servant of the Lord. And if Mary was the one who wrote her song, Magnificat, in the New Testament, then we can assume that she was probably a quiet poet of sorts. And people like young Mary are just as useful in God's kingdom. All followers of Jesus are different, but we can be thankful for this account here, thankful for Peter, because here we find him answering that big question, who do you say that I am? What else do we know about Peter? Well, first of all, his name given at birth by his parents was Simon. It was not Peter. Or in Hebrew, Shimeon, Shimeon, which means he hears or obeys. Now, there is a connection between Peter's original Hebrew name, Shimeon, and the Shema in the Old Testament, which is that ancient Jewish creed found in Deuteronomy 6, which reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's the connection between his name and that Shema? Well, the word Shema comes from the same root as Shimeon, the verb to hear. So as a Jewish boy, we can rightly assume that Shimeon, as we know him, Peter, grew up saying the Shema, similar to how many of us grew up in our Christian homes reciting aloud the Apostles' Creed. Do you see the beauty in this, in God's plan, that it was Shimeon who was going to stand and profess aloud here the church's central belief about the Messiah, the centerpiece now of our creed, the truth that we are to hear and to believe and to declare to the world. Now, what was that creed? What is the profession that Peter made? It's our fourth point, the profession. Peter responded saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This means that Peter came to the conclusion that Jesus was the long-expected, promised Messiah to Israel, the king that was promised to them. This was what Messiah meant, that king, that long-expected king. But here's a problem for us. There's a problem when we hear the word Christ or Messiah. What is it? Well, we don't hear the term Messiah like the Jewish people heard it in the first century. For them, it was packed with significance. We hear the term Christ or Messiah, and we just think of Jesus. But the Jews heard Messiah, and they thought of their prophet, their deliverer, their king, and their priest who would come and save God's people from their enemies and establish God's kingdom of righteous peace on earth as it is in heaven. There was no higher title that Peter could have given to Jesus than this, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And on this point, the reformer John Calvin says, Peter's confession is short, but it embraces all that is contained in our salvation. For the designation Christ 
or anointed Messiah includes both an everlasting kingdom and an everlasting priesthood to reconcile us to God, to forgive us our sins through his sacrifice and obtain for us a perfect righteousness in order to receive us under his protection and uphold us while enriching us with every description of blessings. And Peter, when he looked at Jesus that day, he basically said, Jesus, you are all of that and more. More than that. Peter also declared here as well that Jesus is the Son of the living God. He affirmed that Jesus is the true Son of God. Now here's a question. Did Peter fully understand at this point what he had just declared? Probably not. Peter probably did not know that Jesus was, in fact, God himself in human nature dwelling. He probably did not fully yet understand that. And as the story unfolds, it seems that Peter and the other disciples came to understand the fullness of this claim later when they witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection. But here, Peter still knew that Jesus was more, more than just the Messiah. He was also God's own son. And this came to be and has come to be the central creed for the Christian church throughout the ages. And this is what we believe about Jesus of Nazareth. The Son of God became the Christ for us, for our salvation. This is what we confess in the Athanasian Creed, saying we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. This is mind-boggling for us, a mind-boggling claim. We believe that the eternal maker and living sustainer of all things took to himself our human nature to fulfill the mission of the Messiah and every promise that God has ever made including the promise to forgive sinners like us. What an astonishing claim. Now why? Why do we believe this about Jesus? Why is this our profession about him? Well, for many reasons, but here is one reason why we believe this about Jesus. The disciples of Jesus, like Simon Peter, they dedicated the entire rest of their lives telling people that Jesus rose from the dead and is the living and reigning Messiah. And they were willing to die for that belief. Now think of this. If it was a lie, why would they all stick to the same story about Jesus and his resurrection on threat of death? If it was a fake story that they had all made up, then why were all the 12 disciples willing to be tortured and executed, declaring that he rose again from the dead? They could have easily said, right when the knife is upon them, or the cross before them, forgive me, I'm sorry, we all made it up to gain power, show me some mercy and I'll tell all the people it was just a lie. None of them said that because it was not a lie. They knew what they saw. And they went to their deaths declaring that Jesus, in fact, rose again from the dead. They truly believe that Jesus is alive and well right now at the right hand of the Father, in control of all things, and he is coming back. 
They chose to suffer and die rather than deny that Jesus rose again from the dead. And so today we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that true King of Kings, by faith in the testimony of those apostles like Peter. But notice this, Peter, he came to this conclusion about Jesus before his death and resurrection. Now, how did that happen for Peter? How did he come to realize who Jesus was? Well, first of all, he knew Jesus personally, didn't he? For three years, being his disciple, Peter had witnessed the unique power and personal care that Jesus gave to the lowly outcast of the world. Jesus ate and drank with the worst kinds of sinners, and yet at the same time was the most obedient and holy person that Peter ever knew. Jesus was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, not just like a good human, but like Yahweh himself. Jesus was good and loving on a holy other level. Also, Peter had heard the pure and penetrating truth come off the lips of Jesus on the hillsides throughout the promised land, and also in quiet rooms among friends. It didn't matter where they were or who they were with. Every time that Jesus spoke, every word was filled with goodness and truth. Jesus' mouth was a fountain of truth purified in love. And also Peter had seen Jesus' touch heal the deaf and the blind, the deceased, and even the dead. Jesus turned water into wine, and Peter saw it. He walked on water. He calmed the raging sea with his spoken word alone, and he fed over 5,000 bellies with five loaves and two fish. Peter couldn't explain away the power that he had seen and witnessed in and through Jesus. To Peter, it was undeniable. From Jesus flowed the very power of God himself. Now, how did Peter come to believe this about Jesus? Because, as we've seen, he knew him personally. He saw that Jesus was perfectly loving, consistently true, and divinely powerful. And so when Jesus asked the disciples who he was, well, Peter knew the answer. The answer had been staring back at him in his face for the past three years. He knew that he was looking into the eyes of the Messiah. And based on what Jesus says, in addition to that, it seems that this moment in particular was the moment when God the Father finally gave Peter the breakthrough in his understanding and his faith it was a big spiritual aha moment for Peter. Peter's heart saw the truth that was already in his mind. And he said aloud, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's why Jesus says here that this realization that Peter had was not natural. It was a supernatural revelation. Jesus says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? Well, the Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, explains it in this way. The Spirit of God revealed no new doctrine, suggested no new proposition to the mind, and taught no new thing of God or Christ, but only gave a due apprehension of those things that are taught in the Word of God. 
In other words, Peter already knew the truth about Jesus in his mind because he knew him personally. But it was God who made that reality about Jesus undeniably true and beautiful to Peter's heart in that moment. It was the Spirit of God working directly upon Peter's heart that finally persuaded him to embrace the truth about Jesus as his central creed and declare it with hearty conviction. By that faith wrought by the Spirit of God within him, Peter beheld the spiritual glory of the Messiah in the person of Jesus. Now, do you know this, that that is the way that every true believer comes to faith in Jesus? Like Peter, throughout their life, they hear the word of God, whether it's in their homes or among friends or at church. They hear the word of God, they begin to examine the evidence for themselves, and they come to understand and affirm the claims about Jesus, who he was, who he is. And then the Spirit of God comes and sheds divine light upon that truth in their heart so that that person sees Jesus as the most excellent king and faithful savior. Not just for others, but for me also. Now, has that happened to you? Have you come to behold and treasure the excellency of Christ above all else? Do you know who Jesus is despite what the world says about him? Do you know him by his word as loving, wise, and true? Do you know him to be yours and that you are his? Do you know Jesus like that? If you do, well, praise God. Praise God. That means that the Spirit has also shed his divine light into your heart as well. He has opened your eyes to see and behold the glories of Christ. He has caused you to be born again to that living hope that we have in him. But maybe you haven't yet come to know him in that special way. Maybe you want to. Well, let me give you this word of encouragement. Do not harden your heart to him. Instead, ask God to open your heart to see anything beautiful and true in the life and ministry of Jesus. And I ask you this, what is the danger of asking God to help you see the truth? Don't be afraid of the truth. Ask God to open your heart to see the truth that is in Jesus and what he has done for sinners like us. And also, ask any person here among us, ask me if they would help you come alongside you and study God's word with you to get to know Jesus all the more from his word. Any of us here would be thrilled to study God's word, the Bible, with you to that end, to help you come to a knowledge of Jesus as well. Just let us know. Ask us, please. And then after you come to know him, what next? We'll step forward like Peter did on that day and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Follow in the footsteps of our sister Aaron and our brother Eric, who this morning in our presence before our eyes stood up and professed their faith in Jesus as well. Join the millions of Christians from ages past and around the world. Our faith in that creed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Join with them. Why? Why? You might be asking yourself that question. Why should I give my life in loyal submission to Jesus and his gracious reign? That leads us to our last point. Jesus responds to Peter's confession, his true confession here, with three great promises I want to draw our attention to. The promises of blessing, building, and hope. 
First, Jesus promises Peter that he is blessed of God. True faith in a person is evidence that God has favored that person. What I mean is that if you believe God has chosen to give you saving faith in Jesus and to give you all the blessings that are attached and go along with who Jesus is and what he has done for sinners. It doesn't mean that you won't have trials or difficulties or suffering in this life, but it does mean that you will be blessed by God forevermore in the resurrection on the last day. So why believe in Jesus? Because he promised to bless you, not curse you. In fact, on the cross, Jesus took the curse that we deserve in our place in order to give us the blessing that he won for us. Jesus promises blessing. Believe in him. Secondly, Jesus promises that he will build his church upon the rock. He will build it. What rock? Well, the rock is the confession of truth that Peter declared. The rock is the creed of the church. The rock is the good news about Jesus. The rock is the gospel of God. And what's good about that? There is no firmer foundation than the finished work of Jesus to stand upon. If you believe in Jesus, he is building you and every other believer together on the basis of who he is and what he has done, not who we are and what we have done. So Christians, remember that you do not stand upon the shifting sands of your own obedience. That would be terrible right? Rather, you stand upon the secure, rock-solid obedience of Jesus Christ. Your faith is secure in who he is and what he has done for us. This firm foundation was poured out with his blood on Calvary on the cross and was made concrete by his resurrection from the dead. So why should you believe? Jesus promises to bless you, and to build up his church, including you. Lastly, Jesus promises that the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not prevail against it. This, loved ones, is our hope. Despite the hellish torment that we might face and will face in this world for believing in Jesus, despite that, all forces will fall before King Jesus on that last day. That means that if God is for us, who can be against us? By faith in Jesus, the risen and reigning Messiah, we have this promise. Death itself will not be able to keep us down forever. Why? Jesus is the living son of the living God, and he has promised to return to earth and make our bodies come alive together with him. Alive again after death. Why should you believe in Jesus? Jesus promises to bless you, to build up his church with you in it, and he promises you the hope of resurrection from the dead. So, loved ones, we've considered the place. Remember the place. Remember the person, Peter. Remember his profession. Remember the promises. But most of all, remember Jesus the Christ the Son of the living God. And let me close with this this morning. The words of Jesus have reached each and every one of you today, and he is asking you the very same question. Who do you say that I am? 
I pray and hope that all of us here today come to answer by faith with hearty conviction, as Peter did, saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice in this revelation of you in the person and work of Christ Jesus, your only begotten Son who came to live that perfect life, die accursed on the cross for us to give us all the blessings that he won by his rock-solid obedience. And Lord, we rejoice that we stand firmly upon who he is and what he has done for us. Uh, Lord, we do long to know him all the more and have that same hearty conviction that Peter had. Lord, work faith into our hearts as you did with him. Shed your divine light that we might see and behold the excellencies of Christ and find our hope in him and in him alone. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.